Welcome. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here, and I hope you are as well. I was thinking as we were singing Ancient of Days, I'm definitely not one of those pastors who thinks that it is just always wrong for a Christian to dance. In fact, I like to boogie a little bit myself. Um, not good at it. Please hear me say that, but I enjoy it. But as I was listening to us, I realized why Southern Baptists frown on dancing, because we're still trying to get our clapping together. So <laughs> We'll get there, though, won't we? Now, thank you all for um, the heart of worship this morning. Thank you to our worship team for leading us and uh, for where you have gotten us to, to be able to enter the throne room of grace and behold our great God. And that is the hope and the prayer this morning that we will be able to do that. We are picking up where we left off last week, the pathway to holy and acceptable worship. Once again, we are in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I just want to start by reading this this morning. If you'll turn there with me and then stand, if you can, in honor of God's word, we will look at this text together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Please be seated. As we've been looking at these steps through the pathway to holy and acceptable worship, let me put up here once again uh, these five steps. And as I told you in the past or the last two parts of this sermon, I'm working backward. I started with the goal and then we're walking backward to find this pathway. And we saw the first week that our great goal in Christ is worshipful living. We talked about, as Greg said this morning, the totality of our worship. And if we merely worship on Sunday morning in our singing, in our coming to church, in our putting on our, our Christian persona, then we have not truly worshipped. It is everything we do. That says whether we worship or not is our it is our whole life. How we live Monday through Saturday matters just as much as how we sing on Sunday. That is our goal in Christ is to live worshipfully. And then we saw last week that worshipful living requires wonderful thinking, a transformation of our mind. And we cannot think wonderfully apart from God's word. And so we also saw that wonderful thinking is the result of God's transformational wording. Today we're going to look at these last two steps. God's word is the revelation of God and his will. And then we'll come full circle. Doing God's will is worshipful living. There was a gentleman who went golfing one day and as he approached a particularly hazardous hole with a green surrounded by water, 
his golf game was much like mine, there was no certainty that he would keep the ball that he had. And so he thought, should I use the new balls that I just bought, the nice ones, the clean ones, or should I pull out one of the range balls out of my bag, one of the old dirty balls, and use it to hit because there's a good chance I might lose it. And he thought, I better use one of my older golf balls. So he pulled one of those out, he teed it up, and he approached the ball to tee off, and he heard a voice from heaven, use the new golf ball. Kind of startled and looked around, and there was no one around him. He thought, I must be hearing things. He approached his ball again and again, use the new golf ball. And so not knowing if he was going crazy or what, but... On the off chance that this is God speaking to me, he took the old dirty golf ball, put it back in his bag and got one of the new ones and put it on the tee. And he approached the ball once again to swing. And then he heard the voice again, take a practice swing. (laughs) So he stepped back and he took a, a practice swing and thinking it was okay now to hit the ball. He approached the ball once again and the voice for a third time spoke. Use the old ball. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if God's will were that easy? If we had a, a play-by-play commentary through our life on God's will? Well, I don't know how concerned God is with the kinds of golf balls I use when I go golfing. But there are areas of our lives where He is greatly concerned That we do his will. In fact, we sang this morning about getting to the heart of worship, getting to the heart of it, the essence of it. What is it that defines true worship? And I want to tell you this morning that true worship is simply doing God's will. Now, the disclaimer this morning, and I'm so grateful that Skip alluded to this, is there's a difference between practice and practice based in grace and mercy and trust in God. We can do all the actions right and still get it all wrong. It's the difference between legalism and faith in the grace of God. In a relationship with our Lord and Savior. Walking with Him daily. And so I want to frame this correctly. We can do all the right actions and still get it all wrong. So as I speak today, please hear everything framed in the grace and mercy of a great big God who works and acts in us to will for His good purposes. And it is by grace through faith that we walk like this. That is the heart of worship. Well, I want to tell you this morning, first off, that God's word is the revelation of himself and his will. This is necessary to know as we go forward. If, if doing God's will is worshipful living, which, which we'll look at in just a second, we have to know how to find God's will. And we find it in his word, God's word, his word. The Bible is the revelation of himself and his will. And this is very good news because our God, has anyone seen God in person? Do you know what his face looks like? Can you describe him to me this morning? Can anyone do that? 
No. Why? Because the scripture tells us very plainly, God is invisible. He is invisible. He is unseeable. First Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, we serve a God, or whether you serve Him or not, the God of this universe, the God that created everything, is invisible. And yet I am telling you this morning to look at an invisible God. Now that's quite a paradox, wouldn't you say? Look at an invisible God. And the question is, how in the world am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to look at a God that can't be seen? And if that weren't enough, not only is He invisible, but His glory is lethal to behold. You can't see Him. But if you could, you would die. It would kill you to see him. Exodus thirty-three twenty through 23, you'll remember, Moses has just come down off of Mount Sinai. And he's seen that the people have built this golden calf. And they've begun to worship it instead of God. And so God says, I'm done with this people. I'm done with them. And Moses pleads on behalf of the people that God wouldn't give up on them. That he wouldn't first off destroy them. And that when he sends them on ahead from Mount Sinai to the promised land, that his presence would go with them. And God grants Moses his request. And then he basically asks, what do you want, Moses? And I love Moses' response. He says, I just want to see you. I want to see your glory. And listen to God's response. But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And that's not because God says, no, don't look at me. Or, I'm too good for you to look at. It's because of his great love and mercy for Moses. Moses, I would show you, but you can't handle it. It will destroy you to see me. So let me in my tender love protect you in the cleft of the rock, in the palm of my hand. And I will pass by, but I'll give you a taste I'll give you all that you can handle. I'll let you see the tail end of my glory. Because why? Man cannot see me and live. That's what God says. God is fatally beautiful. He is too wonderful to behold. And if you see Him, it will destroy you. So not only is He invisible... But if you see him, it'll kill you. So how do we find this God? How are we supposed to to see him, let alone know him? Well, good news. Though he is invisible, he has revealed himself to us. He's made a way. He's opened the door. First off, 
to the whole world. He has revealed himself through what he has created. Romans 1, 18 and 20 tells us that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Through creation, we get a glimpse. Now hear me, a glimpse. You cannot see all of God in creation. You cannot get the gospel from creation. For those who say, I don't need church, I don't need to worship, I don't need to hear preaching, I can just go out in the woods and sit, and I'm good. God's word says that's a good start, but it's not enough in and of itself. In fact, what do we say that that revelation brings us? That revelation merely makes us guilty. It makes us accountable. Paul writes Romans 1 in regard to those who say, God's invisible, I haven't seen him, I don't know his ways, I don't have the law, so I'm not guilty. And Paul says, but you have seen, for you've seen enough through what's created to leave you without excuse. And so though he is an invisible God, it does not excuse us from knowing him. What he has given us in creation is enough to know at least that there is a God. How can you look at the complexity of creation? How can you look at the beauty of the mountains and the sophistication of the trees and the whole animal kingdom and not say there must have been a designer, a creator, somebody who figured this all out and put it all together? Who can look at the human body? Even Darwin himself said the complexity of the human eye is enough to give me trouble. For it is far too complex to say there is no creator. And yet, he didn't believe it. We are without excuse, my friends. For though he is invisible, he has given us enough to know that he is. And that we will be held accountable by his holiness. So he has revealed himself through what has been created. But he has made it even better than that. For he is findable and knowable. Though he is invisible, he has made himself knowable to those who trust in him. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you seek him in faith with all your heart and with all your soul, God promises you will find him. Or what does James say? Or God speaks through James, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Or what about what Jesus says in John seventeen three? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that you know God. And since he offers eternal life to all who trust, then there must be a way to know this God, this invisible, fatally beautiful God. And so how has God revealed himself to us in more than just knowing that he exists through creation? God has revealed himself through his word. God has revealed himself through his word. Now, I want you to to listen to this. This is just a cool little illustration. Remember in Exodus 33, I read where Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock as God passed by. God said, you can't, you can't handle this. You can't handle me. 
It's too much. It'll destroy you. So let me show you the tail end. So God in his infinite grace and mercy has done the exact same thing for us. God has said, man cannot handle all of me. I'm too big. I'm too wonderful. I'm too beautiful. I'm too awful. Full of awe. So what did he do? He gave us what we could handle. He gave us what we needed. By no means does this contain all of who God is, but it's more than enough. It is absolutely sufficient and ample for us to be guided, for us to know Him, the one true God. And knowing Him is life, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? And so just as He protected Moses, He has protected us by giving us His Word. So that we can both see his glory and be protected from it. God has revealed himself by his word. Now, in two ways has he done this. He's done it, first off, through his living word. Do you know who that is? Who's the living word? Jesus Christ. That's right. John 1, 1, and then one fourteen says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is the Word? It's Jesus. He is the living Word. He's the image of the Father for us to see and behold. God was unseeable, unknowable. So what did He do in His wonderful mercy? He sent us His Son so that we could finally see him so that we could finally know him and not know him from afar but know him personally and face to face in colossians paul writes in chapter 1 verse 15 he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation and then verse 19 for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and then jesus himself said to philip When Philip asked to see the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you know him. And so God, by his grace, has sent his son, the living word, so that we would know him, so that we could know him. By trusting in Jesus, we come to know not only the son, but we come to know the Father, God himself, Yahweh. But where is Jesus now? Where does he dwell? He sits at the right hand of the Father. He no longer walks on this earth, at least not in his physical presence. And so what do we have as believers some 2000 years later? We have this, the written word, which tells us about the living word. And this is where we must go. This is where we must stay if we are to know this God. This word is where we learn not only of him, but where we come to know him. It shows us who he is and what he expects of us according to who he is. And so we say that doing God's will is worshipful living. And so we go to his word to know what that looks like, to get back to the heart 
of worship. And what does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 12? That it is good and acceptable and perfect. And why is it so? Why is being a living sacrifice, living for Jesus, doing his will, why is it good and acceptable and perfect? Because it is a reflection of who our Father in heaven is. And what do they say about imitation? It's the highest form of flattery. We are called to imitate Christ, but we can't know Christ. We can't know what he did and how he lived and who he is unless we go to this, his word. And so what do we do? How, how do we determine whether what we're doing is worshipful living, namely his will? We have to compare the two. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 2? By testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. We must test our lives. We must compare our lives to God's word. If you've ever done a science experiment, you know that there are always variables when you deal with an experiment. So what do you do or what do you have to have to be able to compare all the variables to? You have to have a control. Something that is stable. Something that is absolute. Something that doesn't change. To compare everything else to. And so God's word is our great control. And we always, always, always are testing ourselves to his word. Comparing our life to what it says. Going to it. Making sure that it matches up. That is how we know what the will of God is. And that is how we worship. It's the only way to worship. This is the heart of worship. It's doing God's will. It's going to his word to find what his will is and then seeing if our life matches up to it. Now, this is where we get into the to the scary part. Because if I tell you that you need to know and do the will of God, how does that make you feel? Now, I don't know about you, but at least for me, that has been a very intimidating command. To know and to do the will of God. And I think most of us say, yeah, I'm willing to do God's will, but I don't know what God's will is. Should I go left or should I go right? Should I do just this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I live in this town or that town? Knowing God's will is a very scary thought. Because then we get into this whole mystical idea that I have to somehow Glean the will of God and sit around and put my fingers together and go, um, um. Of course, I'm going to the extreme. And so it is a scary proposition to think about hearing and knowing the will of God. And if I had a dollar for every time someone came to me and asked, what is God's will for my life? Just tell me. Just just make it easy, pastor. Tell me what God's will is and then I'll do it. If I had a dollar for every time someone asked me that, I'd be a fairly rich man. And don't get me wrong, it is a great question. Because at the heart of the question is a desire to do God's will. Or at least an initial desire to do His will. And there's no doubt that God has a specific will for each and every one of our lives. There is something He's called each and every one of us to do. And it's unique and particular to every single one of us in here. But too often we focus so much on the specific that we neglect the general will of God. In fact, I found that if I focus 
primarily on doing the general will of God. The Holy Spirit will make known to me when I need to know what his specific will is. Yes, the specific is not always easy to know, but the general is very easy to know. Now, maybe I need to define better what I mean by the general will of God. I mean what he clearly and plainly tells us to do in his word. This is the general will of God for every believer, every person. It's written down for us. God wrote down his general will for our lives and gave it to us in the form of the book, a book called the Bible. He made it easy for us. He made it simple. Now, not easy to do, but easy to know. So let me explicitly and clearly tell you this morning what God's will is for your life. And there's no question about this. There's no wondering. There's no, is Brian making this stuff up? Because I'm just going to tell you what God's word says. So what is God's will for your life? Well, before I tell you, and I've got some specifics, and this by no means is comprehensive because we could go on and on for days about what God tells us in his word. But let me just ask you, and and this is not rhetorical, this is... I want you to to speak. What is God's will according to his word? What are some of the things he's told us to do or not to do? To know him. That's God's will. To make disciples. That is God's will. For this is God's will for you. His holy and pleasing. That's exactly right. That is God's will. Love one another. That is God's will. Walk by faith, not by sight. That is God's will. Did you guys know you knew what God's will was for your life? I mean, we say, what is God's will? And and you're telling me right now, you know exactly what it is. To love him. Absolutely. With all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is God's will. Anything else? There's, we could go on and on, like I said. Forgive each other. Huge part of God's will. As we were forgiven in Christ, so forgive one another. What about the Ten Commandments? I mean, that's just spelt out very clearly for us. Have no other God before Yahweh. No idols. That means not only any other gods before him, but any other gods at all. Do not take God's name in vain. Now, a lot of times we take this to mean if you say, oh, my G.O.D., that's what this means here. And it can, I guess. But that's using God's name in vain. This says do not take God's name in vain. Do you know what that means? That means don't take it on if it's not true. Don't profess Christ if you're not a believer. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect all the time. None of us can do that. But this means don't call yourself something that you're not. Don't make claims about yourself that aren't true. Or number four, keep the Sabbath holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not lie, especially in order to speak ill of someone else. And number ten, do not covet. Those are God's will for your life. Van mentioned 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or what about... 
anxiety, worry. It is God's will for you to not worry. Why? Because He's God. And if you really believe that He's God, if you really believe that Romans 8, 28 is true, that He's working everything for the good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, if you believe Romans 8, that if God is for you, then who or what can be against you? If you really believe that, why would we ever worry? Philippians 4, 6 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. As already mentioned, trust God and love Him. And not only love God, but love others. Love your neighbor as yourself, or 1 John 4, 7, beloved, 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another. What about doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly according to Micah 6, 8? Or as Derek mentioned, the Great Commission, Making Disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That is God's will for your life. Now, I don't know about you, but... There's enough there to keep me busy for a while. God, don't tell me anything else because I just, I gotta work on this for a while. This is enough. And so instead of asking all the time what God's will is for your life, maybe the better question is, am I ready and willing to do God's will? Because He's already told us what His will is. At least generally. Or perhaps better yet, Testing our life. Am I right now doing His general will according to His perfect word? Matthew 6.33. Someone quote that for me. Seek ye first the... And all these things will be added. You want to know the specific? Seek first His kingdom. Do the general. And then all that will come. He will reveal... Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. He will direct your path. He will get you where you need to go. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Do what you know to be right and true according to His Word. And God will take care of the rest. I promise you that. When I have trusted God. When I have trusted God. He's always got me where I needed to be. He's always provided what I needed to have. And I look back and say, why did I ever wonder? Why did I ever worry? I ended up exactly where I needed to be. And sometimes it was in spite of me. Sometimes it seemed as if by accident, but we know that there's never an accident in the kingdom of God. No coincidence. Because he's sovereign. So trust and obey God in doing what He's already told you to do, and He will take you where He wants you to go. He will take you to the job He wants for you. He will direct you, direct you to the person that He wants you to marry, or whether or not He wants you to marry at all. He will show you whether to buy or to rent. He will guide you in your decision, whatever the decision is. Are you wondering, this semester student, whether you should play sports or whether you should not to study more or to focus more on your studies? Are you considering MSU, SBU, MSSC or any other college and worried that you might make the wrong decision? You can trust him to lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In his book, Radical David Platt says this, I find it interesting that one of the most common questions asked today among Christians is, what is God's will for my life? 
Or how do I find God's will for my life? Many Christians have almost assumed the attitude that they would obey God if he would just show them what he wanted them to do. In the middle of a Christian culture asking, how do I find God's will for my life? I bring good news. His will is not lost. With 1.4 million Bedouins in Algeria who have never even heard the gospel, it makes little sense for us to sit over here asking, what do you want me to do, God? The answer is clear. The will of God is for you and me to give our lives urgently and recklessly to making the gospel and the glory of God known among all the peoples, particularly those who have never even heard of Jesus. The question, therefore, is not, can I find God's will? The question is, will we obey God's will? Will we refuse to sit back and wait for some tingly feeling to go down our spines before we rise up and do what we have already been commanded to do? Will we risk everything, our comfort, our possessions, our safety, our security, our very lives to make the gospel known among unreached peoples? Such rising up and such risk are the unavoidable, urgent results of a life that is radically abandoned to Jesus. That sounds like a living sacrifice to me. And that is worship. My friends, stop worrying Worry is a sin. Stop worrying about what God's will is and start worshiping by doing God's revealed will in your life. What he has shown you already. He has shown you his will. He has revealed it in so many ways. Therefore, do it. Follow it. If you acknowledge him in all your ways, that's doing his will. That's worship, right? Acknowledging God publicly and we worship by living out his will. Then he will direct your paths guaranteed and so as david platt also says we go to him we spend time with him we sincerely listen to his word as we walk in obedience to it as we do these things god leads and guides us according to his will and suddenly we realize that the will of god is not a road map just waiting to be unearthed somewhere instead it's a relationship that god wants us to experience every day The goal of the disciple of Jesus, then, is not to answer the question, what is God's will for my life? The goal, instead, is to walk in God's will on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. My friends, the will of God is clear. From cover to cover in Scripture, from beginning to end, God's will is to be worshipped. His will for all people is to hear, receive, embrace, and respond to the gospel of his grace for the sake of his glory all over the globe. So I do not believe that God's will is intended to be found so much as it is intended to be followed. Did you hear that? God's will is not so much intended to be found as it is intended to be followed. And so we do not ask God to reveal his will for our lives, but we ask him to align our lives to his already revealed will as we follow him in a relationship. Being abandoned to Christ, surrendering yourself to his will in all things at all times. That is the heart of worship. It is worshipful living. And so doing God's will is the pathway to holy and acceptable worship. It is the path which leads to God's greatest glory and is the path which leads to your greatest satisfaction. And the great news is this, that he has made it available. He has made it knowable. He's not hidden it or tucked it away. He has opened it up for all to see. My friends today, 
will you choose the path of God's word? It may not be the easiest path, but it is easily the most wonderful and blessed one. The question isn't, what is God's will? The question is, are you willing today to do it? Are you willing to walk down that path which leads to holy and acceptable worship?